Good. If you have your Bibles, turn with me in them this evening to Amos 6. To whom much is given. There's a principle which Jesus teaches us in his life and ministry that we find articulated in several of the Gospels, perhaps, um, well, at least the one I've chosen, maybe not the best, but the one I've chosen, being in the book of Luke. In Luke 12, verses 42 to 48, we read this. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom the Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord, delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and the maidens, and to eat and to drink and to be drunken, and the Lord of that servant will come, excuse me, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall shall be much required. Excuse me. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Jesus gives us a lesson here in the context of stewards, servants, and masters. A steward being a man who has been given responsibility or control over a master's goods while the master is away. You have servants and they're simply, they do what they're told. A steward is also a servant, but a steward is a servant who has been given responsibility A steward is a servant who has been delegated the the authority of his master unto a particular end, unto a particular purpose. And Jesus first contemplates the faithful and the wise steward. The one who takes what he has given and he uses it well. And of him, Jesus says, his Lord shall make him ruler over all his household. That this Lord who sees a man who has done well will give him more will make him ruler over more because he has done well with what he has been given. Jesus then contrasts this with a different steward. The steward who reasons that it is unlikely that his Lord would return anytime soon. And because it is unlikely that his Lord would return anytime soon, he, as a poor steward, beats the servants, wastes his time, wastes his master's resources, reasoning that he can clean it all up later before the master shows up. So he's just going to enjoy that, those things for now and, and not worry about the fact that he'll have very little to show for it on the other end. Jesus then says that the Lord of that steward, the Lord of that servant, will come when the steward is not ready, and invariably it will be so. And he will cut him in sunder and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Not that he would reckon him an unbeliever, but rather that 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 man would receive the same reward as the unbeliever, namely nothing, that he will suffer loss. 
And this loss, Jesus says, would be reckoned in accordance with his degree of knowledge. To the steward who knew less of his Lord's will, his accountability will be lower. If he did not fully understand his Lord's will or he was not given as much instruction as it relates to his Lord's will, his accountability is less and that ignorance will count for him in fewer stripes. And to the steward who knew more of his Lord's will, his accountability will be greater. And the reason why forms the basis of the principle which I consider for the early portion of this message. Unto whomsoever much is given, of him much shall, shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. With responsibility comes accountability. This is true in the realm of men. Men give responsibility to those who have taken that which they have been given and done well with it. When a man is right in his accountability for what he has, then he is given more. And this is true in the realm of the spiritual as well. And we'll consider that in a deeper way as we continue through the message. So, we are here in Amos 6 this evening. And let's read together the first seven verses. Amos writing, he says, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. Pass ye unto Calneh. And see, and from thence go ye to Hamath, the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms? Or their border greater than your border? Ye that put far away the evil day and cause the seed of violence to come near, that lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall, that chant to the sound of the vial and invent to themselves instruments of music like David, that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with chief ointments. But they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive. And the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. A couple of messages ago in Amos chapter 5 verse 18, we considered the divine woe given to those who desired the day of the Lord in Israel. And we talked about what a woe is. It is a uh, declaration of lamentation. For God in Amos 5.18 said that the day of the Lord would be for those who were in Israel darkness and not light. Today we see another woe here in Amos chapter 6 verse 1. Woe unto them that are at ease in Zion and that trust in the mountain of Samaria. Now we could take this idea in a couple of different ways here. We could take this to mean those who are not concerned about the judgment that is to come. They are at ease even though there has been this declaration of judgment. The day of the Lord is coming, but they are at ease. And notice here we see not just this as it relates to Samaria, not just as it relates to the nation of Israel, but God extends this woe to Judah. Woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. Mount Zion was the place in Jerusalem where the temple was built. And so he says, woe unto those that are at ease in Zion and those that are at ease, that trust in the mountain of Samaria. Both of them. And so we could say that this is because they're not concerned about the coming of judgment. That in the midst of the proclamations of judgment given by Amos, they are at ease and they are not affected by these things. And of course, in some senses, that would fit our context very well, for we have seen much of that, but that's the thing. We've already seen this. 
God has already said that. God has already rebuked the nation for their hardness of heart, their incapacity to realize that they were ripe for judgment. As a matter of fact, that's what Amos 5 was all about, right? But as Amos 6 continues, it appears that there is a fundamentally different idea uh, behind the, the, those that are at ease. It appears that it's not necessarily talking directly about those who are not afraid of the judgment that is to come, although we might even see a double meaning and say it's both of these. But we find that the warning is against those in the nation who are well-to-do. They are at ease because they have the power in the nation. They are at ease because they are the leaders. They are at ease because they are financially well. They are comfortable. And because they are comfortable, because they are at ease, this woe is upon them, not directly because they have things, but because they are the ones who have power, who have leadership in the nation. They are the ones, if I may put it this way, who have the capacity within the national context to do something about what Amos is saying. And even though they are the ones that have the ability to do something, they're not doing it. If I may, if I may gloss Amos chapter 6, verse 1 in the way that I believe Amos means it, woe unto them who are the stewards in Israel and in Zion. Woe unto them who God has been given the responsibility to lead this nation and who aren't doing it. Woe unto them who know what, 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 what's coming, who know the judgment of God, who understand these things, who have it within their power, within their financial capacity, within their leadership capacity to do something about it, and they're not doing it. God further describes these men as those who are named chief of the nations. I believe not that that means Israel and Judah are chief among the nations. I, I don't know of too many places where God calls them that. But rather that, that he is speaking to those who are named chiefs in those two nations. The leaders of these nations. And Amos says that the house of Israel came to them for leadership. He says... Woe unto them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations, to whom the house of Israel came. The picture is this, that there was a time where the house of Israel heard these words that Amos said and they came to their leaders and they said, there's a prophet of God saying these things. What should we do? And we'll see this particularly in Amos chapter 7, which we'll get to over the next two weeks. We find that what they did when Amos came and proclaimed this message is they said, don't worry about him. And then they went to Amos and said, you need to shut your mouth. So the house of Israel came to these who are the chief of the nations. And the, these who are the chief of the nations being at ease, disregarded the prophet. When the word of the Lord came and the people looked to their leaders, the leaders of the land, to see what they should do, the leaders rejected the prophetic warnings and the nation saw this rejection. They trusted the wisdom of their leaders and now the whole nation, Amos says, would be brought low. Yes, because the nation did not repent. But even more specifically, 
because those who God had ordained as stewards over the nation to lead them did not lead them into repentance, did not lead them into righteousness. So Amos says this. He says, pass to Calneh. This was established in those days as the capital city of Assyria. We understand that there were some great cities, but in this particular time, as Assyria was reestablishing its dominance, Calneh would have been the place, the city. And then he says, then to Hamath, which would have been a great city in the land of Syria, west of, of Assyria. And then down to Gath, which would have been in this area. It's not actually on here. But down into that region of Gath, that great city of the, of the Philistines. So God cites these great cities of Assyria, moving from east to west of Assyria, then Syria, then the Philistines. And he says to these chiefs of the nations, to these leaders, he, he, sa- he points to these three cities of these three great nations and he says, are these kingdoms greater than your kingdom? Are these borders greater than your border? And the idea is this. Has not God done more for you than he's done for these? Has God not blessed you more than these? Has God not promised to do so? Is not your advantage greater than theirs? If we may again put it in the terms of Luke 12, are you not a steward who has been given more? Have you not been given more understanding, more accountability, more blessing, more responsibility? How then have you gotten to this point that you will be overthrown by your enemies? And God answers this question because they put far away from themselves the fear of judgment. Thus, this other idea of them being at ease. Because the leaders of the land are not afraid of God. They do not fear the Lord. And instead, he says, you bring evil near to you. He describes them. He says, you lay in beds of ivory. A bed of ivory would be quite a lavish thing. He says, you eat the lambs of the flock and you regale yourselves with music. You make instruments like David did. They're putting their time and their effort and their money into all of these cultural exercises, into these uh, uh, luxuries. He says, you drink wine in bowls. That's describing the sheer amount of wine that they had at their disposal. They anointed themselves with expensive oils and perfumes. And they used all of these material things to cover over this ease that they have to cover over the reality that judgment is at the door. And and they, they bring evil near while they live in this luxury, while they live at ease. And the leaders of the land did all these things with the resources with which God had blessed that nation. But they never grieved for the sin of the land. They never repented. They never grieved, as verse 6 says, for the affliction of Joseph. Joseph, of course, having two tribes within his umbrella, Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim being the great tribe, the the, the, the primary tribe of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. So the idea of grieving for Joseph would be grieving for northern Israel. 
He says, you've, you've laid on your beds of ivory, you've danced, you've played, you've eaten, you've drank, but you've never grieved for Joseph. You've been bad leaders. So God says in verse 7 that they would be the first to go into captivity. That they would be the first to be removed. And with that thought in mind, I bring us to a first point of application this evening. To whom much is given, much is required. We already talked about that in Luke 12. But here's the point. Christian, God has given to each of you gifts and abilities. And to whatever degree He has done so, to whatever degree He has placed you in a place where you have responsibility, where you are a steward of things that He has given, be that money, be that abilities, be that time, you're a steward of these things. To whatever degree you have that, to that same degree you are responsible for it. You're accountable for what you do with it. Now, the most direct application to Amos 6 is in the realm of leadership, of spheres of influence. Some of us are God-chosen leaders, men and women given by God to be examples to others, to direct others, to lead others, and to take upon yourself the burdens that accompany this. Others are not so. And yet you've still been given any number of spheres of influence through which you have a potential to impact the lives of others. To the leaders this evening, know this. That when we say to whom much is given, much is required. If God has made you a leader, much has been given. Filter that through a fear of the Lord and understand what is required. To those of you who are not necessarily leaders in any sort of a formal sense... Perhaps you have not been given as much, but know that you have spheres of influence that you still and yet have been given. And as it relates to those spheres of influence, there is much required to the extent that you have been given. To whatever degree this is, be that as a husband designated by God to lead your wife, you have a sphere of influence, you are a leader. You are a leader by virtue of the fact that you stepped into that position on the marriage altar. Maybe as a father, as a mother, designated by God to train up your children in the way they should go. As a church leader, as a leader in your vocation or your occupation, in your neighborhood, social club, city, whatever it might be. Spheres of influence, Christian. To the degree that you have a sphere of influence, to that degree you are called to be faithful unto the Lord with it. And to discharge your influence in a manner that is becoming of a child of God. On this day in Amos 6, the prophet rebuked men who had a sphere of influence. In this case, the chiefs of the nations, the leaders of their respective nations. But they failed to use it to direct the hearts of those who followed them unto the Lord. Let us not do the same this evening, Christian. Let us not fail to direct the hearts of those with whom we lead in the manner that is right before the Lord. Let us not fail to be leaders of integrity. Let us not fail to be leaders of honesty. Let us not fail to be leaders of clarity, of righteousness, of obedience, of faithfulness. 
They had been given leadership. They had been given authority. But when the time came that they should use their authority, their position of leadership, their influence to compel men unto repentance, to mourn, to grieve for the family of Joseph, they instead lived in their lavishness. They sat idly by and they led the nation into apathy rather than into obedience. And to this we might say, well, pastor, if the leaders of the nation aren't going to repent, well, then make it a grassroots effort, right? Don't wait for your leaders. You do the repentance. You humble yourself. And any who would say this are not wrong. But that also isn't the point this evening. Two thoughts here. First, we acknowledge as we live in a nation that is desperately attempting grassroots change in the midst of leaders who are utterly corrupt and contemptible, that there's only so much changing that can happen without the consent of those who lead. And that's not just about a nation. There's only so much change that can happen in a family or a church without the consent of those who lead. But second, and this is the point which I believe is being made here in Amos, at least that I'm trying to make through Amos. Hopefully those two are the same. And I believe this is also the point that Jesus was trying to make in Luke 12. It's that a people should not need to seek unto God in spite of those who are their ordained leaders. They should be able to seek unto God as they follow their ordained leaders. Husband, your wife should not be forced to seek unto God in spite of you. In spite of your spiritual leadership or lack thereof. Fathers and mothers, your children should not be forced to seek unto God in spite of your spiritual leadership in the home. Your children should not have to, to organize a grassroots effort to find some sort of spiritual value in your home. It ought to come from the top down. Church leaders, the people in the church should not be forced to seek unto God in spite of me, in spite of my leadership. Church members, the people of our community should not be forced to seek unto God in spite of our willingness to live it or to tell it. To whom much is given, much is required. And when I have been commissioned by my Heavenly Father to do, to influence, to lead, to tell, with that much that has been given, that much is also required by God. What have you been given, Christian? What is your sphere of influence today? What is your sphere of influence tomorrow? What are the opportunities that you have been asked to lead? Maybe you're a reluctant leader. Maybe you never asked for it. I didn't ask what you asked to lead. I asked what God asked you to lead. Does that make any sense? It's not always the case that you asked for it. It's not always the case that you wanted it. But where has God put you? What are you doing with it? Are you leading unto Christ? Are you leading as a child of the kingdom of God? Are you a good and faithful steward? Because to whom much is given, much is required. Back to Amos. 
verses 8 through 14. The Lord God hath sworn by himself, saith the Lord God of hosts, I abhor the excellency of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore will I deliver up the city with all that is therein. And it shall come to pass, if there remain ten men in one house, that they shall die. And a man's uncle shall take him up, and he that burneth him to bring out the bones of, out of that house, and shall say unto him, that is by the sides of the house, is there, any yet with, uh, is there yet any with thee? And he shall say, No. Then shall he say, Hold thy tongue, for we may not mention of the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commandeth, and he will smite the great house with breaches, and the little house with clefts. Shall horses run upon the rock? Will one plow there with oxen? For ye have turned judgment into gall, and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. Ye which rejoice in a thing of naught, which say, Have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? But behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, saith the Lord God of hosts. And they shall afflict you from the entering of the of, in of Hamath unto the river of the wilderness. Very similar to the expressions that we considered last time in Amos 5. God says that he abhors the excellency of Jacob. The idea in this is that the blessings that God had given to the nation of Israel and Judah had made them entitled, had made them selfish rather than thankful and humble. Their success had driven them to apathy and to evil rather than to distinction and to obedience. And this made God abhor the blessings that he had given unto them. And so he vows to strip them away so that they might no longer pour contempt upon his goodness with their rebellion. Because that's what they were doing. God had shown them such goodness and he poured contempt. They poured contempt upon his goodness with their rebellion. And God says, as we have seen time and again, that their excellency will be diminished that they will be undone. And it is described in kind of a strange way, tragic way, in verse 10. It said this in verse 10, And a man's uncle shall take him up, and he that burneth him, to bring out the bones out of the house, and shall say unto him that is by the sides of the house, Is there any yet with thee? And he shall say, No. Then shall he say, Hold thy tongue, for we may not make mention of the name of the Lord. The Jews have, in consistency with most civilized cultures throughout time, buried their dead rather than burned their dead. There's no theological imperative here. There's no theological imperative to burying your dead versus burning your dead. Only this is what has historically been done in Judeo-Christian cultures, as opposed to pagan cultures where the burning of the dead is, is quite common. But in times of great death and destruction, regardless of what traditions a civilization might have, a civilization will always fall back on burning their dead because there simply isn't space or time to bury them all. When there is a mass death incident, there is simply no time, there is simply no space to bury your dead. And so you must burn the dead instead. And this is the picture here. In this scenario, a man who is the relative of the dead is bringing his bones out of the house and those around him are saying, is there any yet with thee? Is there anyone left 
to which the kinsman will say no, but then compel those who are there not to mourn, to not speak the name of the Lord, because it is the Lord who has done this thing. Because they will finally in that day, to this degree, fear the Lord. And God asks in verse 12, Shall horses run upon the rock? Will one plow there with oxen? For ye have turned judgment into gall and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. Horses cannot run upon a bunch of rocks. Nor can oxen plow upon a bunch of rocks. That's not how it works. And the idea is this. God has given them spiritual blessings. God has given them spiritual horses to create mighty armies. God has given them spiritual oxen with which to plow mighty lands. But their hearts are stone. God has given them a commission to mete out justice, but they turned that justice into bitterness, into poison. The idea of gall is a very bitter substance, right? Gall is a bitterness. When you see gall in the Bible, the idea of gall is that of bitterness. Hemlock is a bitter and poisonous herb. All that God had blessed them with had turned sour in their hand. So once again, God promises to raise up a nation against them and to afflict them. And he says in verse 13, Ye which rejoice in a thing of naught, which say, Have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? To this day, God says to these leaders in Israel, you are still convinced that it is your ability, that it is your strength, that it is your capacity that has brought you to where you are. You are still convinced that you have done this and not God has done this. You are still convinced of this thing, so you do not fear the Lord, and instead you exalt yourself. And he says to them that they will be brought down. And they will be brought down to Hamath. That would be that easternmost city that we talked about in Assyria. For it would be Assyria that would take them captive. And this leads us to that second application this evening. The first one, to whom much is given, much is required. The second application this evening. Don't allow God's blessings to strip you of your distinction. The people of Israel had been bountifully blessed by God, and this blessing, in a sense, became a curse to them. Have you ever seen this happen to yourself or to others? When God blesses someone, we might call it the Solomon complex. When God blesses someone and in that blessing, they get lazy or apathetic. In the days that they were not so well, things weren't going as well, they felt a a strong need to rely upon the Lord in that day of difficulty in that day where, where, where things could go either way, in that day where they had nothing but the Lord, and so they leaned on Him heavily. But then there came a day where things started to settle in, where they found a measure of success, of fruitfulness. And in that fruitfulness, they kind of forgot about the Lord. In that fruitfulness, they started to think that maybe they had done this thing. They got proud or they felt no more of that tension of living, uh, li- li- living by the Lord's generosity month in and month out, and so they began to get lazy. And that blessing, the blessings of the Lord for their faithfulness actually began to become a curse to them. The blessing made them selfish or entitled or apathetic. 
The blessing caused them to become lazy. And this is what happened to the people of Israel. Far from drawing them into thanksgiving, into gratitude. You know that's the proper response to blessing, right? The proper response to blessing is humility and gratitude. Because we acknowledge that it was not us but God. And that leads us to a place of thanksgiving. And then through gratitude and humility comes joyful service. And a continual faithfulness to the commission that the Lord has given. But instead, Israel took all of these blessings of God's goodness toward them and they used them to sin. They used them to bring evil close to them and they dove headlong into wickedness. And as I was studying this message, there was a particular illustration in the scriptures that God used of of both Israel and of Judah that came to mind. And I'd like to share that with you this evening. To that end, I'm going to read a longer passage of scripture in Ezekiel 16. If you'd like to turn there, you may. Of course, it will be on the screen as usual. But I'm going to read 22 verses in Ezekiel 16. This is somewhat of a special passage of scripture to me. I don't even exactly know why, but it has kind of rooted itself in my heart in a unique way. And it's found its way into numerous uh, uh, seasons of life in my life over the years. It illustrates this concept very well. In Ezekiel 16, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, Again the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, <clears throat> excuse me, and thy mother an Hittite. And as for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut. Neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied thee to do any of these things unto thee, any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. So the picture is of a child who is born, and when that child is born, that child is neglected and abandoned. This is the picture that God gives of Israel in the day of their inception, that they came uh, from obscurity, and that God saw them in that obscurity, and they were abandoned, and they were bloody, and they were uh, uh, starving in an open field. No one to have compassion on them. Verse 6, And when I passed by thee, And saw thee polluted in thy own blood. I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field. And thou hast increased and waxen great. And thou art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned, thine hair is grown, whereas thou wast naked and bare. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. So then we have the picture of this child growing up and then God passing by again and him seeing her and, and, and uh, he, he loves her and he takes her as his own and he covenants with her and he clothes her and he blesses her and he cares for her and he makes her his. Verse 9, 
Then washed I thee with water, yea, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil. All of that former times, all of that, that, that abandonment, all of that awfulness, all of that loss, all of that lack of care was more than made up for with the love that God showed to this nation. Verse 10, I clothed thee also with broidered work and shod thee with badger skins, uh, very lavish and expensive. And I girded thee about with fine linen and covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments and I put bracelets upon thine hands and a chain about thy neck. And I put a jewel on thy forehead and earrings in thy ears and a beautiful crown upon thine head. Thus wast thou decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk and broidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil, and thou wast exceedingly beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom. And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. So then God translates this into that national idea that God had given them lavishly. He had given them wealth. He had given them prosperity. He had given them beauty. He had made of them a nation. He had multiplied them greatly so that they were world-renowned for, for, for the beauty which was from His comeliness. It was His beauty. It was His prosperity. It was His righteousness. It was His love. It was His blessings that He had bestowed upon them that made them beautiful. Verse 15. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty and playedst the harlot because of thy renown and pourest out thy fornications on every one that passed by. His it was. And of thy garments thou didst take and deckest thyself, uh, thy high places with diverse colors and playedst the harlot thereupon. The like thing shall not come, neither shall it be so. Thou hast also taken thy fair jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given thee, and madest to thyself images of men, and didst commit whoredom with them, and tookest thy broidered garments, and coverest them. Thou hast set mine oil and mine incense before them. My meat also, which I gave thee, fine flour and oil and honey, wherewith I fed thee, And thou hast even set it before them for a sweet savor. And thus it was, saith the Lord God. Moreover, thou hast taken thy sons and thy daughters, whom thou hast borne unto me, and these hast thou sacrificed unto them to be devoured. Is this of thy whoredoms a small matter, that thou hast slain my children and delivered them to cause them to pass through the fire for them? And in all thine abominations and thy whoredoms, Thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth when thou wast naked and bare and wast polluted in thy blood. So as the narrative continues then, this nation takes all of these blessings and all of this renown and all of this greatness of the Lord's comeliness that had been placed upon them and they began to take the blessings of God and they began to give them to evil the blessings of God, and they took those blessings and they devoured them unto evil, blaspheming the name of God in the manner in which they used the blessings that God himself had given them. 
Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Ezekiel 16, but the, the end, I, I, I read to you the first 22 verses of a very long chapter. Uh, the end is beautiful. It's outside the scope of the sermon, but I encourage you to read the last five verses or so, last four verses, and find that though they had forgotten the Lord, the Lord had not forgotten them. A very Hosea-esque type message. But that picture, that picture of those who had been pulled out of their nakedness and their, their, their sorrow, had been elevated by a, by a loving God, only to completely take all of the things that God had bestowed upon them and use them unto evil, use them for their own purposes, use them to exalt themselves in selfishness or in pride. That's the picture. With this idea at the end, that they forgot the days in which they were naked and they were bare and they were polluted in their own blood. They completely forgot about them because of the Lord's goodness. And in forgetting about them, they abandoned the very one who had been that goodness. And Christian, God forbid that we should do the same. God forbid that we should take the wealth of the nation which God has blessed us with or the time which we have due to our prosperity and use it to shame God's name. God forbid that we should take the abilities that God has given to us or the commission that he has given, the stewardship upon which he's given to us, whether that's as a father, whether that's as a husband, whether that's as a church leader, whether that's as a church member, whether that's as a member of a society in which we can live without persecution in this time. God forbid that we should take these things that God has given to us and we should use them to serve ourselves in opposition to the kingdom of God. God forbid that we should become proud on the backs of such wonderful gifts. God forbid that we should continue in sin, that grace may abound. And it is this idea that I compel each of us to think through this evening. Don't allow God's blessings to strip you of your distinction. As you contemplate your position in God's kingdom, your place as God's child, have you fallen into the same tendencies as Israel did in her day? Have you failed to live up to the blessings that God has bestowed upon you through Jesus Christ? Have you taken them and used them, as I've said, to continue in sin that grace may abound, to pursue your own uh, ideas and your own priorities at the expense of what you know God would have you to do simply because you know, well, you're, you're already in anyway. You've already got heaven locked up. Have we failed to live up to the responsibilities that accompany the many things that we have been given? Have we failed to lead those that are in our sphere of influence unto the truth? Are you so content in the fact that you have the truth that you are unwilling then to disseminate that to others? Have we failed to tap into the power which Christ has given us through the Holy Spirit to obey His word? Have we disgraced God's blessings upon us? Have we used what we have been given to advance our own interests rather than Christ's interests? Have we used our gifts to serve our own desires rather than Christ's desires? Now, we would not expect in that the covenant that God had made with Israel is not our covenant. We talked about that this morning. We would not expect that the consequences of our failures in this regard will be the consequences of Israel's failures. I would not expect that if Legacy Baptist Church falls short, that we would end up uh, being taken into Assyria. 
Probably not going to happen, right? And yet within the scope of the warning, we recognize that there's coming a day where we will stand accountable. We spent a lot of time in Amos talking about that. And on that day, the question is this. Will you be counted a faithful steward? Christian, to whom much is given, much is required. God forbid that we would allow his blessings, that we would allow the stewardship unto which he's given us, that we would allow the spheres of influence that we have to strip us of our distinction. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.